Welcome Fruitball fans, another Friday, another exciting review. On today's episode, we learn to drive backwards, we find a secret algorithm to solve, and hunt down an arms dealer, as we discuss, review, and give final ratings on Tenet, released in 2020. As always, there will be heavy spoilers, so please watch this film first if you don't want it spoiled. Now that the spoiler warning is done, grab a snack, pour a drink, and get comfy for today's episode of Fruit Bowl Weekly. Fruit Bowl Weekly and a can of Coke. I'm Ron Ra, joined again by Kitchen. Wallet. <laughs> Wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and just onto a quick synopsis before the main review. Tenet is an action thriller film about the protagonist, a no-named agent who gets forced to join a new faction using the word Tenet. This leads him on an adventure around the world to help find an arms dealer, supplying and using special technology that can travel backwards in time. And in finding this arms dealer, the protagonist may just stop World War 3. So, Tenet is definitely a confusing film, in my opinion, towards the end. But, I will say that despite the fact that the premise sounds confusing, the actual theme and the way they use the effects and the actual premise itself, self-contained, is really, really good. The actual premise itself isn't purely just like a back-and-forth time travel thing. Like, it's not just you end up in the future, you end up in the past, you still go on sort of like the one-track timeline. The whole idea is that things can exist now in the present time, and just by doing an action, the action itself causes an object to act in reverse, as if the action itself has already been done. Mm. And I, I understand that that sounds confusing as fuck, because I thought it was confusing as fuck. <laughs> I think it's a very unique take on time travel. Yeah. Because, as you mentioned, rather than moving backwards in time in an instant, as if they've gone from one position to another position in time instantaneously, instead, they move backwards in real time. So if we were to move forward a second, when you're inverted, you move backwards one second in that same time frame. Yeah. So time flows at the same rate, but in the opposite direction. Because as they put it, entropy is reversed. So hot becomes cold, forward action becomes reverse action. It sort of plays into that throughout the entirety of the movie. But I will say, although they managed to do the time element, in my opinion, absolutely amazingly, it impacted the storytelling. It feels like a very cliche spy movie with a really cool premise. Yeah. Now, (laughs) despite the fact that you said that it seems very standard, I definitely got thrown for a loop at the end. You did did have to explain a little bit um, to me about the overall ending of the film. But in terms of, like you said, the actual story, it is just about hunting down an arms dealer who's intent on causing World War 3. Despite all the sort of time fuckery, despite sort of any of the logic or science or fake science that's thrown into it to explain it, the whole premise isn't that creative in terms of what the main character could have done. Nolan doesn't make any attempts to tell you that they're using real science. No. He knows that the focus of the movie is telling the story in the way he wants as coolly as he wants. Yeah. And throwing out pseudoscience or just fake science, stuff that might be grounded in reality, but is absolutely not real, he has no issue with because it's for the movie. Yeah. I can appreciate that they're not trying to be real, but at the same time, you can't think very logically about the process without some element of realism to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's even a line when... It's either Neil or one of the other scientists or something that goes on a long explanation about like how the machines work or whatever. And this happens multiple times throughout the film. But there's a line that says, like, do you understand fully? And the main character goes like, no. And it's like, good. You may just don't think about it. There's another line in which yeah. it's like, does your head hurt? You know, it's like, 
basically that's just signs saying it's a cool premise we are trying to give it some logic in the world because uh, like if it was just time stuff without any logic it would be misplaced but the film's also basically saying look if you think too deep into it you'll get lost in that exactly instead of following the actual plot of the story they sort of add your own subjective feelings to the mix in how the world operates for example when trying to pick up the shell casing the bullet the protagonist tries to do it because he knows it plays in reverse he tries to do it but because he doesn't think that he's dropping it it doesn't jump into his hand so he has to actively will something to act in reverse if it's inverted for that thing to sort of in its own like level of intelligence by its own will move in accordance with that yeah there's a lot of weird little bits like that i guess put in some intelligence on not real things and a lot of like subjectiveness or philosophy thrown in this movie that heavily features throughout so i will say that it does lead to some extremely interesting action scenes or just events that happen in this film and to me that is one of the best parts about this film yeah it's an incredible payoff one of, I think, the most outstanding scenes that has a really good payoff is in the middle of the film that sort of focuses on sort of like an airport heist in a way. It uses, like, it brings that back and that has a massive payoff. You have the protagonist, like, when we first enter the airport and they're doing the heist, someone comes out of this machine and it's like the fight's happening, but you can see that the other guy is clearly inverted and the whole fight <laughs> scene is... It, it does, in some scenes, look odd or a bit janky in a way, but that makes sense with the way that the scenes are done. And, like, at yep. the end of that, he sort of... The guy's body that's now lying on the floor just flies outward after a jet engine explodes. <laughs> and then later on, when we get back to that scene, um, we find out that it is... The, the protagonist was the guy in the black suit. And he, you know, the jet engine explodes. He gets shot under the shutters. And now he's fighting himself <laughs> again, in a way. And now it's sort of... It's still inverted, but obviously to him, it's kind of like still going forward and then he enters the machine again and it's just it's interesting stuff like that that makes the film super enjoyable to watch if you ignore sort of the plot around it i'd say yeah but knowing it's a time travel movie also has its drawbacks because twists like that are very easy to predict if you know there might be multiples of the same person yeah and indeed, I, I I believe, I don't know if you did, but I definitely um, did notice that immediately. No, when I first watched the trailers, and even at the beginning of this film, I for some reason just thought it was just backwards tech. Like somehow they invented yeah. technology or suits or something in which the action has kind of already happened. So like, you know, you could shoot a bullet where you are now and then somehow it would come back when someone's walked across it and come backwards and it would go through them. You know, sort of like that sort of premise. Yeah, and you wouldn't be wrong, really, because they did show bullets reversing their trajectory and getting placed back into a gun, you know, from being unshot. In an odd way, it shows that you could set up a trap where you've already fired a weapon and then you can unfire it later to assassinate the person and retrieve the bullet yourself. As a real-time person, you can still affect inverted objects. Yeah. Which I would have liked to see used more in the movie. I thought that was going to happen after the first, like, 20, 30 minutes of the movie. Because they do show this a lot. They show it in the uh, opera scene. Yeah. They show it in that fight scene in the airport. They show it before that in the brick wall where we see non-inverted characters inverting bullets back into guns. Yeah. And I thought it was going to play a larger role than it did. Sadly, it didn't. It was about the inversion process and not really how you can use it. Yeah, I almost feel like the sort of premise slowly does a small shift. Like, to hmm. me, I feel like the beginning of the film, it kind of wanted to be that. Because they say that they got this wall that was, like, filled with bullets from somewhere else. Like, it's a relatively old wall, you know, it's just hung there, it's got, like, the bullets in it. And obviously those bullets might not be from that same gun. Those bullets, you know, might be from somewhere else. So I always thought, like, it used that as sort of, like, the catalyst 
and you know someone managed to just send these back into the past and that's how the arms dealer got them and now there's going to be sort of weird wars in which you know people can already set traps that will only affect the other person while still being in the room and you've got suits in which you know you might be able to reverse some damage that's happened to you just by inverting a small amount of time yeah. When you get towards the middle of the film and you start to realise, no, every object is kind of sort of fixed place and it's just moving backwards in time uh, because it's sort of already happened or something like that, that sort of really impacted me in the middle and sort of throughout the whole actual special tech part of it, in a way. And there are the scenes like that brick wall gun thing with the reverse bullets. It sort of tears holes somewhat in the idea of the loop which is currently going on yeah now they show that this movie has a heavy theme of determinism for one and they show that if an action happens it's always going to happen that way in effect no free will yeah but that also means it's predictable so when the lady pulls a bullet from the wall and indeed when the main character pulls a bullet from the wall in reverse that means that bullet was shot by that gun into that wall at some other point in time. Yeah. Right? But that t- that point in time has to be a reverse of the current point in time, which means it should have happened there at that same time. Because every other time you see a bullet hole in a wall, it's come from a specific gun at the exact same location within that same time frame. Because just because the flow of time is reversed doesn't mean things happen at different points in time. They happen at the exact same point in time. It's just one person does it in reverse, one does it in normal speed. In fact, it's usually the same person because they're the ones who have been inverted. Yeah. So it that doesn't make sense. It's, it, you can say, sure, the wall and the gun are isolated as reverse while everyone else is moving normal speed and they can interact with it. Fine. But the bullet still has to end up back in the wall. Yeah. In real time. Because they've just dragged something... They've just reversed time in real time. Yeah. And the bullet still needs to find its way back into the wall at some point. Exactly. Apart from the premise and the effects in the film, another great thing that I loved was the actual characters themselves. So we have John D. Washington playing the protagonist. Yep. <laughs> that's that's dumb as fuck. Yeah. Like, his acting, his acting in this film, for me, is great most of the time. I will say that it's a little bit sort of stoic or his acting sort of drops a little bit in more suspenseful scenes Mm. but overall his performance is great the naming of his character though that that is dumb i mean you didn't have you didn't have to call him the protagonist (laughs) i don't mind him being called the protagonist because that's nice in a way it means they don't have to put a specific name on him which could i guess get some people annoyed make it harder to relate to the character but he refers to himself multiple times as a protagonist, and that's where my problem lies. It's the same problem we've had with a few other movies we've seen, where the main character, sort of almost fourth wall breaking, refers to themselves or has been referred to by other characters as the hero, or a hero, multiple times, as if we don't get it. The fact that JD, as the protagonist, refers to himself multiple times as the protagonist of this story, or stuff, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Just really grates on me. We don't need yeah. to know this. It's not his fault as the actor, but we don't need to know this. We don't need to know he's the main character or like exactly. the main character of this story. And as the character of the protagonist in the movie, those lines just grate me hard enough for me to like the character less. The actor, though, I think he did a great job. So... Apart from the protagonist, we then have his antagonist, which is Andre Sater, played by, I believe it's Kenneth Branagh. Something like that, yeah. So, Andre, uh, well, sorry, Kenneth, I mean, does a (laughs) great job at playing a massive asshole. Yeah. And that is great, because throughout the entire film, I fucking hated Andre. I hated (laughs) just... Every fibre of his being. I think it's very easy for an Irishman to play angry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but there's there's just moments in this film where he's like, you know, I'm the tiger. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're a tosser. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) 
and uh, you know, it's like, you know, you don't step on my toes because I'll fuck you up. It's like, shut up. Shut up, Andre. You're just, you're just angry because you're dying. He is an absolutely almost perfect actor in his role as Andre. I've seen a few things about his Russian accent not being completely there. I'm not Russian. I can't say. <laughs> yeah. But his portrayal of Andre is excellent. Absolutely no negatives to say about him and his acting. I will say that his sort of ability to flip the switch is pretty good. Like, there's yeah. moments in which, obviously, he's, he's, he's still an angry, angry, angry prick. Seething and spitting while he speaks. He's so out of control. Even in, like, his karma moments, there'll just be sort of, like, one thing in which, like, his wife will give him a look, and then he'll just be like, right, I I'm I've made this assumption that you got you've slept with this guy. Get the bell. But he does it in, like, a <laughs> calm way, but just the way his sort of actions are and the tone of his voice, even then you can tell, like, if she wasn't, you know, actually vital to whatever they're currently doing, he would have probably just lashed at her. You can definitely see in the character, the, like, wheels of sadism turning in his head. He plays an intelligent character, and you can see that. Like, just through action alone. Fantastic job. I will say, though, that his character's clearly intelligent because he uses his fucking time, you know, bullshittery to his absolute advantage. Like, he is, apart from the end, like, a hundred steps in front of nearly all the main characters. If the ending didn't already sort of suggest that this was all gonna happen anyway, if the ending was a little sort of more open-ended, it would have been, it would have cemented him more as a more intelligent villain. Yeah. But I will say that his some of his decisions, like just going back to a memorable spot to die, or you know, just sort of trusting these people who obviously he shouldn't trust. Now, granted, he does end up not trusting them and he still turns the tables on them, but it's like, at that point, why even do that? He could have obviously just killed the protagonist at some point. Yeah, Andre is definitely moved a lot by emotions, but is still highly intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to Kat, played by Elizabeth Debicki, I believe. Mummy. You know what? Her character's... <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> her character is honestly her character's fine. Yeah. I, I honestly didn't think too much of her character at first. I thought she was just gonna be, you know, she's there as the gateway between Andre and the protagonist. Which in a way is true, but sort of her overall sort of involvement in the plot does stay and she is there for a legitimate reason, which I think is good. And her acting's fine. Uh, uh, she plays the abused housewife really well. Well, she does have some character progression as she doesn't like taking shit off yeah. Andre. And she reaches the point where she's willing to act on it in the second half of the movie. So she does grow as a character. Before then, she does really just play a lot of the damsel. In fact, at the end of the movie, she's still being protected by, by the protagonist but it's based on her own actions that she gets protection, so that's okay. But I think she's written as a very strong-willed character in, in, in a very positive way. Oh, yeah. Like, her character, clearly, even from the minute you meet her, she's like, nah, I fucking hate the situation I'm in. It's, it's shit and it's garbage. Yep. But she's doing this for her son, because her son is literally everything to her. Exactly. And Andre probably would shoot him. I mean, let's be honest, he is pretty much a psychopath. Yep. And if he'd probably then shoot her, and then he'd probably shoot himself, and then the entire world would be doomed. But I just feel like her, her actual sort of dedication to just go through all this, you even see that she's scarred at the end of the film, just being like, yeah, you thought you killed me, well, fuck you, I'm saving my son, and just caps his ass. Yeah, what happens in that end scene is, that is future Andre that has gone back to the boat. Yeah, that we like we saw the boat in like the first hour of the movie, and he returns to that point in time. But this is future Andre. At the same time, future Cat, which is now being healed of her wounds inflicted by Andre, yeah. has gone back, and her showing that scar in the final moments is basically her revealing her cards to Andre, saying, "Look, I'm the future one. Gonna kill you now. Gonna kill you now." Basically, yeah. So she can get her revenge and see the val see the shock on his face because, in her own words. Well, paraphrasing her she 
didn't want him to die knowing he had won. She wanted at least him to know that he had lost. Yeah. And she does it by her own hand, which is good because earlier in the movie about that whole tiger bullshit. <laughs> yes. She did hold a gun to Andre's face and sort hesitated, of... Hesitated, yeah. She hesitated, yeah. And uh, it shows that she has grown as a character and actually is willing to put action behind her feelings. And then we have the best bro, the uh, absolute Chad himself. We have Neil, played by future Batman, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson, yeah. And you know what? Beginning to end, I don't think there's anything wrong with Neil. I absolutely loved his character. Absolutely love the character. Acting was great. And to be fair, he's got a lot of acting under his belt now. So his experience is really shining through here. Yeah. Only negative, he's an English actor. Being English ourselves, I'm sure you notice it too, but there are times where his accent sort of falls. His accent slips up a few times, yeah. I don't know what's up with it. Yeah, because he's, he's supposed to just be playing a British spy, isn't he? He's a native speaker, but it feels like he's putting on an accent that he doesn't need to. Maybe to sound more posh? Yeah. And give more of that suave spy aesthetic? But at times it does fall off. It's actually a shame because he could have used his normal voice, but maybe the direction was different. Was like, you need to sort of be more, I guess, James Bondy in a way or something like that. Yeah. You know, you have to sort of sound posher, act a bit more. Not, well, not even uptight, actually. It's, it is just... No, it doesn't act Honestly, it's, it's just about that. It does act full of himself, but that comes with the territory of being English. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the way the accent is. It just It just sounds superior because we are. <laughs> it does indeed um, but yeah I, lo I love the character of Neil and how he seems to have this posh well spoken accent in a way he's very intelligent yet he's scruffy as heck Yeah, he, he still dresses <laughs> yeah. like a schoolboy and can't tie his ties properly and stuff. It's, I, I think it's brilliant and just the fact that when he's like talking with the main character and stuff he'll, he'll give off a bunch of this you know science mumbo jumbo and then it'll be like <laughs> you know do you understand that? No? Uh, well, let's just leave it at that, friendo. Yeah. It's like, you know? And his inclusion in this story, I think, is honestly one of the better ones. Because yeah. to me, he starts off as what is potentially a side character. He gets introduced as just, he is going to be my help, and I'll use him occasionally. But as the plot goes on and on, you find out, like, no, he's been... He wasn't recruited by you then. You know, he's been with Tenet all along because he was recruited by you at a different point in time. Yeah, future him recruited past Neil. <laughs> yes. And as the the plot goes on, you know, he, he ends up sort of saving them towards the end of the film, but trapping himself in this eternal loop of helping them and then dying, which includes helping them. It's a very tragic, heroic ending for Neil, and he has been the biggest outspoken character in terms of the determinism I mentioned before. He's meant to be the logical scientist, so his character is, if it's happened, it happens like that. For him, there's no changing it. He doesn't want to know because it's not going to change anything. And at the end, the protagonist sees a reversed Neil take a bullet to the head to save the protagonist, and therefore allow them to succeed in their mission. Now, past Neil, realising that the gate was locked and there's only one person who can go back and open that gate for the protagonist, yeah. decides it's time to go back. You know what's going to happen when he goes back. Yeah. And it's sort of a tragic ending for such a, a nice character, such a supportive character, just being the good boy. I also love the fact that, technically, he saves them twice. Yep, he does. While also still dying in the end because obviously he takes the bullet after opening the gate and he gets shot in the head and dies but also for them to escape he drops down a rope which they attach to the, the algorithm bollocks and drives up and also helps them escape the hole so he ends while saving their lives twice and that to me is just such a bro move that's good boy neil yeah more than <laughs> twice as well in the airport fight scene, he prevents protagonist from shooting himself. Yep. In the very beginning of the movie, in the opera house terrorist sequence, he saves the protagonist from being shot. 
by one of the terrorists that discover the protagonist is a fake. So that's at least four we can think of so far. There's probably more that revolves yeah. around the film. There's probably yeah. more that we haven't seen in it. It's just Neil has been so prominent. He's been so helpful to the main character. And he's just... His whole personality, his look, his actual involvement in the story is perfect. I I, I yeah. loved Neil as a character. By comparison, the protagonist is a bumbling buffoon and Neil is sort of his carer. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> at least until the protagonist true. gets to a point where he founds Tenet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh uh, no, that's that is absolutely true. So one sort of inclusion that I, I guess was needed, which is nice to see, is that Michael Caine's in the film playing himself. So that's that's nice. essentially himself. Yeah, they changed yeah. the surname, but he is still a Sir Michael. <laughs> he's yeah, he's basically Michael C. <laughs> but his whole inclusion is just basically to talk about Stalsk Twelve, which is the location site that they end the film in and begin the film in, technically, because that's where the algorithm is located. Mm-hmm. His whole inclusion is literally just to establish that place, so it doesn't come out of nowhere when they get to it. He also introduces the inn for the protagonist. Ah, yes. In contacting Sator by giving him a false Goya painting painted by Arepo, which is opera spelled backwards. And honestly, I suppose apart from that really important sort of actual inn, his inclusion's fine, honestly. I like the yeah. fact that he, um, the, he kind of forces the protagonist to go eat at an extremely fancy restaurant yep and then tells him his suit sucks <laughs> yes <laughs> i love actually i will say that i love the line in which he goes can you box that up for me and he goes, yeah. Absol- absolutely not <laughs> absolutely what? not sir yeah <laughs> get out of here fool <laughs> it's like damn all right <laughs> i'll leave <laughs> no i uh that that was a good scene i enjoyed that um th- there's a few side characters there's Mahia, there's Ives, there's Priya, played by Aaron Johnson, Himesh Patel, and Dimple Kapadia. Dimple is a famous Bollywood actress, I believe, that was brought in specifically for the role as Priya. Oh, that's cool. I think it was incredibly successful as well, because they also shot in India. Oh. And I think her being in the movie just helped them bolster support from the Indian community in assisting the movie creation process. Oh, that's awesome, that. Yeah. They managed to get some of the first ever aerial shots of Mumbai caught on film for Hollywood. Yeah, That's quite a feat, and it's just amazing that they brought people in from other... Not just Hollywood. Yeah, sort of outstretching the reach. Exactly, yeah. And they brought people in, and they brought their communities together, and I, I just think it's a wonderful thing that they did that. I will also say that her character follows on from sort of cat's trend or starts that trend in the film like Priya is another dominant sort of in control female character in which it also sort of well actually I'd say uh, Priya is a good reverse to Kat because her husband is sort of the front to make it seem like you know oh it's a strong male lead Whereas, really, Priya's the one that's got all the controls. She's the one that's like, you know, if you shoot him, I'm not going to tell you the info you want. Whereas, with Kat and Andre, it's kind of the reverse. Much like Neil, Priya is already in Tenet at this point. So she's already a time-travelling spy and has built up this massive empire to aid in the Tenet mission. And I guess she vies for control of Tenet. A little bit, yeah. You do sort of... Yeah get that feeling like she's wanting to be the one that controls Tenet so that she can have, honestly, probably the power that, like, Andre has. You know, the ability to do whatever she wants sort of thing. Quite possibly. And she's almost like a minor secondary antagonist. Yeah, for sure. As I mentioned, there's also Mahia and Ives, but in terms of their characters, they're fine. They're not really in it that much. Mahia's a good boy. That, I mean, that's true, but Mahia, to me, kind of seems what I originally thought Neil's character was going to be. Like, he purely fits the role of the assistant helper character. But you couldn't have Neil hijack a plane, because it can't be terrorism, can it? <laughs> they have to hire the brown-bearded man to hijack a plane, because then it's terrorism, and I just get deported and go <laughs> yes. off the record. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
I love the fact that that's what they say in the film. It's like, you know, yeah. worst is that. And Ives, for me, the only reason he's included is so that he can be the third person to take a part of the algorithm. Yeah, and threaten the main character very briefly before being a cool guy and saying, you know what, I'm not going to kill you, just take a piece and run with it, I'll find you later. But other than that, he just seems like basic war boy, in a way. Like, he just makes the plan... Even then, the plan was probably provided to him technically by the protagonist in the future, probably. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he's sort of with the protagonist as he goes down into the tunnel, as they find the algorithm, and they split off the algorithm in three pieces between Neil, yeah. uh, the protagonist, and Ives, and then Ives leaves the situation. It almost sets up for a possible sequel or side story involving Ives as an antagonist. I don't think it's a possibility, given how this movie went, and it shouldn't, because leaving enough up to our imagination is actually more enjoyment than seeing it. So I don't think there will be a sequel, but certainly Ives could be the antagonist in the future that Tenet's still fighting against. Yeah, I feel like an immediate sequel to Tenet wouldn't really work, because despite the fact that we don't know how far into the future Tenet you know, it has officially been started, or in the past, or whenever, but I feel like an immediate sequel would probably be the protagonist fighting Ives, due to the fact that maybe Ives is technically hunting the rest of the pieces down, maybe he's suddenly changed and wants the algorithm back together, or I feel like that's where a a potential sequel would go, and based Mm. on the end of this film, of everything that's happened has already happened and is destined to happen, Technically, the protagonist cannot die unless it's by old age or after Tenet has been created. Yep, he will have to die after, way after the events of the movie. Yeah. Because he still needs to found Tenet, he still needs to recruit Neil at whatever age he recruits him. He still needs to travel back, because he has to travel into the past to found Tenet, I believe. Yeah, because, I mean, the state, the wall that they used at the beginning was found, like, years ago or something, or was from, like, a battleground or something like that. They say that the wall was a part of a past area, event. which yeah. means that the technology could predate, like, a week before the events, or it could be yep. years. Either way, though, they the, the protagonist needs to be well-aged before yeah. he can die. And he's immortal until then, because the scenes will still have to keep playing out as per the loops. Back and forth, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's no free will in this movie. Everything is set in stone. But just to quickly go on about uh, a little section that I mentioned at the beginning, is the sound and the music design of Tenet. It's uh, Ludwig Göransson who did music for Black Panther and Mandalorian. So, nothing against him. Honestly, the music in Mandalorian's great, and Black Panther, the music in that was okay. It was fine. Uh, the music in this... <laughs> it is, it is, it is <laughs> the return of the Blahms. And the, the problem is, is that in some cases, it'll be like a, a beat that's just sort of like really loud, followed by a long horn noise. So it'd be like, oh. boom, 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 boom. And it's like, ugh. No. Now, I happen to know that the music was made before the scenes were created. Now, oh, this is done okay. this is done often. This is done often. It's, I don't think it's the normal practice, but it's done often. Yeah. And I believe that the footage was meant to have been in editing synced up to the audio rather than the audio being created for the sequence. Right. But it doesn't feel like that quite happened with the music and the editing working together. Especially because the music is either, this is my opinion, is either average or very not average and ear-splittingly loud compared to the the speech. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's a lot of times in which the characters are speaking. And the thing is, this isn't even just about the music. This is the sound editing. Is that even when characters are speaking, they'll for some reason always be just a, a weird, loud, sort of thumping most of the time, in Mm. which it's kind of like... I watched this film with subtitles, just because it started off with subtitles, but without them, I feel like I would have missed some portions of characters speaking. Funny you said that, because I normally watch in subtitles, but for some reason, mine weren't working. Oh no! And I did have to go back and increase my volume for specific talking parts. 
and then yeah. promptly lower it because there's now a plane <laughs> crashing and yes. there's like just a brass section that won't chill out. And I I feel like for some reason Nolan wanted to potentially follow the same sound design as Inception. Now we all know the classic Inception warm noise, yeah. and for that I feel that makes sense because the whole point of that film is that sudden sort of weird shifts in reality are happening and you don't know when they're going to happen. Whereas in this, the thumping and the long horns don't make a scene feel suspenseful, doesn't make a scene feel too action-packed. It just really annoyed me. Yeah, it's obvious that the music is heavily inspired by some of Nolan's other works, but it worked for those because of the themes of the movie. And the, as you were mentioning, the unexpectedness of things happening with the inclusion of a loud noise does put you in a certain startled mindset and that can just increase your experience. But when you're seeing a plane driving into a building or just boats moving, I don't really feel that we need large bois sounds. Just a little bit of bass would be nice because obviously the plane is a big thing and it's doing a large thing. Yeah. So obviously I understand the mindset of the loud, like large metal structures, but at the same time, it's way too much. Now I know, I know Ludwig can be, or Ludwig, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I know that he can make very good music, but I'm thinking maybe the direction or his, um, his inspiration at this point in, for this movie may have been misplaced. Yeah. If it does happen often, which I don't know anything about this, if it does happen often that some music is created before even the scenes you just sort of give, get given like a brief maybe description or someone tells you a scene or something and it's like make the music from this yeah it's not the norm as far as i'm aware but it is it is something that's practiced most of it i believe would probably go unnoticed but in this to me i i definitely felt like none of the music fit or if it did fit it was for a very brief amount of time and then it was overpowered by more sound editing that was done, in my opinion, badly. Maybe there's some secret sound editing hint or easter egg where it's like, no, if you're listening deeply, it's the sound of literally everything going back in reverse. And I did pick up on some of the sound stuff that was going in reverse. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know, the birds going backwards and making, you know, the noises they make in reverse and stuff. But when something like that is just done throughout the film, it's just bad. And I yeah. feel like it just lowers the film overall. It does. It ruins the experience in parts. There are some pivotal scenes that are supposed to carry an impact. And the music just draws away from that. And there are scenes where characters are supposed to be discussing important things. And they're speaking too quietly. As we mentioned before, the whole sound design is kind of... It's 0 to 11. <laughs> There's no yeah. balance. And it does really take your interest away from it. Like I said, I had to keep going back to re-listen to characters. I had to keep turning down the music in certain points where no one's speaking. And yeah. I shouldn't really need to do that as a viewer of a movie. You want to watch the movie and take that movie in. But when you're constantly thinking about the volume level, it's kind of hard to concentrate on that. But we've mentioned the editing briefly. The editor was Jennifer Lame. And she's not living up to her name. I think the editing, for the most part, is very good. Yeah. There are some odd cuts. There's one especially jarring cut for me when they're in the airport and they're at the double doors and they're both trying to get into a separate single door that leads to the same room for some reason. And Neil, being the cool guy, helps the protagonist open the door. Now, we see the keypad and then it suddenly cuts and Neil's hand has already pressed the button on the keypad. Yeah. That is the only cut in the movie that sticks in my mind. There's a second issue I have with the bungee in Mumbai. Oh, the, the bungee scene, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know whose decision this was, but that scene looks jank as heck. Yeah, that whole really bungee does. sequence looks super jank, and I think my theory is that that is bungee footage, that is repelling footage played in reverse. Right, yeah. Which you could argue that's pretty neat because the movie's about time and there's a lot of time references, turning back clocks and stuff like that. But it just looks weird. So just playing it in normal speed or having them climb up a building in a normal fashion may have been better. It also sort of makes it a weird decision since most, if not all, of the actual inverted effects themselves were done with the actual actors in real time. Yeah. So 
I feel like that, because when I first saw that scene, even before most of the inverted stuff happened, just looking at that scene just felt really misplaced. Like, it felt things were going a bit, like, faster than usual. It felt things were just coming together in, like, a weird way. The actors weren't reacting as you would expect them to in that scene. And even them just going up to the top just felt really jank. Whereas yeah. a lot of the times in this film, just with any inverted scene, you can see them reacting as they would if they were being far by someone who was inverted. That's the thing. For those fighting sequences, they recorded them at least four times. You had yeah. the actors fighting in non-inverted time, so standard time, fighting forwards, then purposely acting in reverse to make it look more natural. Then when the protagonist was fighting himself, he had to fight inverted normally, then inverted in reverse. <laughs> he had to remember the same choreographed sequence from two perspectives in two different ways. I think the airport scene is one of the best scenes in the movie. The fighting scene is a little weird. There's a lot of pushing around instead of actual fighting, but that's part of the course of what they were trying to achieve. But the way they did that scene and stitched together the footage... Besides small differences that you'll see if you see them side by side, I thought that's the perfect way to do a fight scene with this sort of time-based premise. Yeah. And those big effects they got right, like I said, besides the slight desyncing when you re-watch it or compare them, I think they, they did it right. But even the, the army fight at the end, the big, the big payoff, yeah. the big end sequence, which actually happened two weeks before the character was recruited, before the movie even begun. This, they had the soldiers running backwards, and they recorded them in real time running backwards. Then they recorded them in real time running forwards, and they did that for each group, for each sequence. Yeah. We haven't really mentioned the choreography, but it's outstanding. And the amount of effort the actors had to go through for them to achieve this level of quality in filmmaking is substantial. And sadly, the payoff for the movie isn't proportional to the effort involved. Capitalising on the said payoff, <laughs> if you want to definitely describe it that way, is that, honestly, I will say that the Andre Sater being killed payoff was relatively satisfying. I enjoyed that. But we get hinted at so many times throughout the film of this legendary algorithm. Yeah, the, the mighty MacGuffin, the Dragon Balls, that will run any time wish. It, it's, it's just, it's a cylinder. It's a tube. It's, it's dumb. Isn't it like a staff made up of lots of little squares? It's, it's like a nine connected bowl staff, is what it's yeah. like. And each, each segment, when pieced together, you discover time travel. But it's weird, because they already have access to reversal anyway. yeah. I think what they need the algorithm for is to reverse entropy on at least a global scale. And then they can merge entropy and reverse entropy together to equal nil. Yeah. Existence will stop existing from that point in time. So, in other words, it is a bollocks MacGuffin. It is, yeah. It's one of those big, big world ender cliches. I mean, every movie's got to have one anyway, otherwise there's no plot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because yeah. the, the only reason he included the, the goddamn algorithm was because for some reason the bad guy needed a world-ending plot device. Yes. Which is why the algorithm gets hyped up throughout the film. Uh, like, honestly, 40 minutes in, or maybe even a little bit before that, it's like, no, we need to get the algorithm. It's the key to everything. And... At the end, when they finally get the algorithm and they split it off into uh, three pieces, so Ives takes three, Neil takes another three, and the protagonist keeps three, that's that's just it. We see that's them it. pick it up and we see them leave with it and there's no true explanation of what it is. There's no sort of true theory crafting about how fucking Andre was even going to really use it. It's literally just I would have stuck them all together and the world would have just ended. Yeah, I think what was happening was he had set it up so when he died, because he was a dying man and we saw with his wife, if he can't have her, no one can. Well, yeah. if he can't control the world, then no one can. So the world might as well just stop existing when he does. So 
he stole the mighty MacGuffin, he reassembled it, and he set it to, I guess, detonate or activate upon his death. Yeah. So when he died, entropy would no longer exist at that point onwards, and everything would just collapse. And you won't even know you were alive from that point yeah. on. Everything just stops. And this is why I kind of wish that they kept more of the special technology angle rather than the time plot. Hmm. Because I feel like if he... if it wasn't so back and forth in time with inverted people and people who aren't inverted and they just kept it to he literally got his hands on this technology that could take over the world or kill a bunch of people or you know he could invert missiles to do something that explodes the world whatever instead of it literally just being i need to get this futuristic bow staff and blow it up because to me, that absolutely ruins his overall motivations. Because his motivations are clear-cut. He, he doesn't want anyone else to have the power. He doesn't want anyone to have his wife. He wants to end the world the minute he dies. Because he's a man that's slowly dying. Yep. So, you know, if you've got all this time technology and stuff, there is no doubt you could probably get world-ending missiles. There's no doubt you could have probably invented something using this technology to cause some sort of meltdown or whatever. Yeah, I propose putting the um, the time rotundas, the, uh, what are they called? Oh, What's the name of the... Honestly, you know what? The whirling dervish doors, anything, whatever. I figured they could just put one inside another and see what happens. Just, just let it just go nuts. You could send an inverting machine to the past that way, which is probably how they did it originally. Yep. But you can send it so far back in the past that time travel could technically be invented centuries away from now yeah but you'll have all the power because much like the dead drops that andre's getting he could dead drop things to other people in the past and expand his empire in the past which depending on your time view would give him power now would have a, a cascading effect in the future there are other ways they could have played this as well because they did bring up the whole like uh, grandfather paradox which is exactly how this movie works the fact that the characters can't change fate by free will alone and everything is set in stone means Grandfather Paradox is live. So movie doesn't matter. <laughs> but anything that they did which would affect the current future, then nothing would change. And I'm not going to lie. Even though that is something that you don't really learn until the end. And, you know, you start to piece it together bit by bit. And then the true payoff is like, no, you're the one that set this all in motion, protagonist, bro. You're, you're the one that's basically done all of this. You knew for a fact that Sator was the one. You had to recruit yourself, otherwise you wouldn't be in the future to do all this. Yeah. And to me, that kind of ruins... Well, for a start, this ruins any rewatching of this film. Yeah, he's, not, he's never in danger. And it ruins any rewatch. And to me, it just it definitely gave that pointlessness feeling. Now, granted, yep. it's right at the end. So if you watch from the beginning... Up until the end, you know for a fact, all right, this is just a, you know, it's an enjoyable film. And then the ending hits you and it's like, okay, so literally from the minute I hit play, everything was just going to be okay. But Well, I mean, this, yeah. I mean, we're talking philosophy because it's a Nolan movie. Yeah. He always has this sort of subjective mental shit in his movies. Yeah. The, what you just described there is a sense of nihilism for the movie where absolutely nothing is worth it. Ah, uh, yeah. It was, yeah. So, nothing has value in this movie once you realise that no matter what, the characters were never in danger because everything's going to play out in a specific way that has already played out. Because it's a loop, which means yeah. our character isn't the first part of the loop. No. He can't be, because there's someone in front of him hiring him and bringing him in, and he <laughs> yes. already exists. So he's part of a loop. The loop doesn't matter. Nothing matters inside the loop, because it's all going to ha happen in the exact same fashion, but that's what we're watching. We're watching this thing that doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's still a fun watch. It's still a fun watch. In my opinion, yeah. as a as a premise, as a cool time-based movie. Um, a movie based on, what, the Sator Square, just like the name Tenet. The entire movie is a palindrome. You can watch it backwards and forwards, and it's exactly the same movie. Yeah. Because the back the, the end part of the movie happens at the beginning of the movie before the movie begun. So where's the starting point? There isn't one. Yeah. Um the fact that there are there are tons of Easter eggs referencing the Sator Square, obviously Andre Sator. You have the company Rotas, which is, you know, Sator inverted. 
Yeah. In the Freeport. Tenet, obviously, is Tenet, no matter which way you put it. It's a palindrome. You have Arepo, the Goya Forger. And that reversed is Opera, which is like the opening sequence of the movie. It takes place yeah, in an opera house. I think maybe two house. sequences took place in an opera house. Like, it's filled with these Easter eggs, these inspired moments. Which are fun to pick up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's the thing. I know for a fact the whole nihilistic thing I just said, but that's literally the thought process that went through my head when I got to the end. Now, don't get me yeah. wrong, that doesn't mean that this isn't a fun film, because it no. is. I, I, I will say, though, like the if you just sort of push the story to the side and just enjoy the characters for what they are, enjoy this fabulous theme and the effects that go really well with the theme... The effects and time travel stuff and the inversion is just done so well. That's what it's about. That is that is the driver's seat. Everything else is in the back. Yeah. Forget forget some of the cut problems I mentioned. Forget the fact that the main character flashes the algorithm before throwing an empty box to the villain. <laughs> the villain would obviously obviously have seen that he was getting an empty box. Yeah. Forget small bits like that because it's not about that. No. It's about how they implemented this crazy inverse time idea uh how they executed it and just i think how much attention to detail went into it that's what it's about for me it's not about the spy story it's not about the the action sequences although they play into the time-based thing yeah it's it is about the execution of the premise and i do love the premise i love the characters it's just, I do feel like there could have been so many better story angles you could have taken, keeping it as pure tech, which I guess the first half of the film, to me, seemed like it was going to be. Mm. The effects and the themes could have stayed the same, it's just it could have also had a good story to go with it. And overall, I'd say that this film is worth a watch. It is a really good watch on first take, and the effects and the the, the way they do the inversion is just fabulous. But it has to get a six just because the listening, the sound direction, the music and the story just all fall. As mentioned, the focus of the movie was all the the time bending stuff. And personally, I love that shit. The sound design was a crime. Sorry, Uh, (laughs) but I didn't like it. The philosophy, why throw that at us? Because it, it ruins the movie. Allow us to make our own decisions on that. Overall... I actually really enjoyed the movie for its flaws. And as I mentioned before, the effort in the movie was... The effort to make this movie happen yeah. was ridiculous. They had to travel the world. They had to... The um, cinematographer, Hoyt, had to jury rig an IMAX camera to record on inverted film to <laughs> actually make this work. <laughs> wow, yeah. The production design by Nathan, it looks incredible. The fact they had to make tons of scale buildings to destroy their foam caves that look like they stretch onwards forever even though it's just a painted wall yeah those are all excellent and you wouldn't notice them you wouldn't notice that effort because it's so well done it's so expertly crafted that these points slightly push it above your score from a six to a seven and on that note fruit bowl fans comes the end of the episode as always Don't forget to follow us on Spotify and all other major podcast platforms to catch new episodes every Friday. Or support us directly by going to anchor.fm forward slash fruitballweekly. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at fruitballweekly to keep up to date with fruitball news, any giveaways we may be doing, or to catch our fan-picked review polls every four weeks. Please send any feedback or any fruitball episode ideas to us at fruitballweekly at gmail.com and we will catch you next week. See you then. See you then.